Chapter 18, Minimum Sentencing and Other Punishment of the Corrupt The sentencing of those found guilty of corruption is varied in different jurisdictions. In China, for example, the death penalty is used to punish the corrupt. In the Middle East, in countries in which Sharia law is followed, capital punishment for corruption also still occurs. Though punishments don't often come directly from the Quran, the ideas of certain types of capital punishment can be brought to bear in accordance with the severity of crimes committed. Islamic scholar Numan Ali Khan says that there are many passages where certain things are highlighted more than others. The reasoning behind the use of capital punishment in Islam is to regulate and make sure that humanity is still intact within society, which is why the forms of punishments have evolved as the times have changed to adapt to the ways of living in this life, where Islam is also evolving and growing. In the modern era, most Muslim-majority countries have adopted criminal legal codes based on European models. Persisting with capital punishments of any kind has also caused controversy around the world because these are regarded as inhumane forms of punishment in international law. Legal forms of capital punishment vary among Islamic countries. In August 2018, Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei approved the establishment of special courts to crack down on financial crime, saying that courts will target enemies disrupting and corrupting the economy. The recent corruption sweep in Iran comes at a time of great economic turmoil. In earlier times, during the 1978-79 Iranian Revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini established revolutionary courts to prosecute a broad swathe of crimes, including sowing corruption on earth, crimes against the people, crimes against the revolution, all of which were capital offences. Some African jurisdictions still practice capital punishment, usually for crimes of violence by repeat offenders. In South Africa, it was left to the Constitutional Court to declare capital punishment unconstitutional as a form of cruel, inhuman or degrading punishment, as the phrase in Section 121E of the Bill of Rights puts it. The politicians had been unable to agree on the fate of capital punishment as it was used in the pre-liberation apartheid order in South Africa. The court's first criminal law case consigned capital punishment for murder to the dustbin of history, and it is unlikely that any attempt will be made to revive it, despite its popularity among the general population in South Africa. The punishment of the corrupt is a sensitive issue. Not only is it difficult to prove the crime of corruption, those who stand trial are, or were once, all too often powerful and well-connected figures. In Angola, outgoing President Dos Santos thought fit to grant his entire family immunity from prosecution before he retired after more than three corruption-soaked decades in the leadership of his country. The incoming government did not countenance the step and has frozen the assets of Isabel Dos Santos the daughter of the former president, who is reputed to be the richest woman in Africa. 
She's not going down without a fight, though, having been reported by legal brief today on the 13th of May 2020 as saying, Looking at the forged evidence, it is now clear that the Angolan state, through the intelligence services, prosecution, civil court and Supreme Court, has colluded and contrived a case to obtain an unfair and illegal decision against me. There is also an unusual trial in progress in the Democratic Republic of Congo, one of the weakest states in Africa, in which a presidential advisor is facing charges of corruption. This is how Legal Brief today reported the matter, coincidentally also on the 13th of May 2020. A powerful aide to President Felix Tshisekedi is on trial for corruption in a case without precedent in the DRC. Tshisekedi's chief of staff, Vital Kamere, the aide, is accused of having embezzled more than $50 million. A report on the Bangkok Post site notes that he is being tried in a makeshift court set up within Kinshasa's central prison compound, where he has been in custody since the 8th of April. The proceedings are being broadcast on national television. I have a major function to carry out, Kamiri told the court. I have all the fame that comes with the job, so I am duty-bound to behave as a statesman and to honour our justice system. The New York Times reports that Khameri is charged alongside two others, Lebanese businessman Jamal Sami and Janon Muhima, a senior aide to Chisikedi. They also pleaded not guilty to the charges. The trio are accused of siphoning funds intended to finance major works under a 100-day emergency action plan that Chisikedi launched after he took office in January last year. The funds were earmarked for the construction of 4,500 prefabricated homes. The New York Times says the case against Khamieri is part of a broad investigation that is supposed to mark the renewal of the Congolese justice system in the fight against corruption among the elite since the country's independence from Belgium in 1960. Never in Congo's political history over the past two decades has such an important player on the political scene been put behind bars, said New York University's Congo study group. After the trial judge died of a heart attack, the trial had to be restarted. Khamiri was convicted and sentenced to 20 years with hard labor. The seriousness with which courts view the crime of corruption is well documented. Judge Navi Pillay, when she was UN Human Rights Commissioner, put it this way, Make no mistake about it, corruption is a killer. The former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, David Cameron, is reported to have remarked, The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. It lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face, from economic uncertainty to endemic poverty, to the ever-present threat of radicalization and extremism. And perhaps most pertinently, Ulla Tornas, Denmark's Minister of Development Cooperation, said, Corruption, in the form of bribery and misuse of public funds, 
is a major obstacle to democracy and economic development in many of the world's poor countries. The punishment of the convicted corrupt is accordingly a matter of some moment. In most countries, mechanisms exist to enable the victims of the corrupt actively to claw back the proceeds of corruption. A tender to return the loot is regarded as a mitigating circumstance by most courts. The tricky issue is whether it is appropriate for legislation that binds courts to pass minimum sentences in respect of those found guilty of serious or grand corruption as an appropriate way of addressing the crime of corruption. The notion of a minimum sentence is a politically driven one. Fearing that the state would be regarded as soft on crime after the death penalty was abolished in South Africa, the government introduced minimum sentences in respect of serious crimes in order to show, politically at least, that it was not soft on crime. The courts found this a bitter pill to swallow, seeing an intrusion into their traditional discretion in relation to the passing of a sentence that is tailor-made in each case to balance the interests of the victims, broader society, and those of the convicted criminal. From a scientific viewpoint, the utility of setting severe minimum penalties and sentences is questionable in relation to corruption. The commission of the offence of corruption is a calculated affair. No crime of passion, negligent action, or spur-of-the-moment decision is involved. Being a bilateral offence in which there is invariably a corruptor and a corruptee, it is clear that careful calculation goes into the plot to commit the offence. Not only do the offenders weigh the chances of being caught, they also consider the prospect of being convicted and punished and take a calculated risk when they decide to commit the crime anyway. This thought process is based on the assessment of the prospects of being caught and punished. The assessment is usually that the prospects of being successfully investigated are so slim that the risk is worth taking. The parameters of punishment do not feature in the calculations of the criminals embarking on a corrupt enterprise or transaction. The research is critical of mandatory minimum sentencing regimens because the intention to deter with the threat of increased terms of incarceration is not an intention that works in practice. As Valerie Wright observes in her briefing note for the sentencing project called Deterrence in Criminal Justice, Research to date generally indicates that increases in the certainty of punishment as opposed to the severity of punishment are more likely to produce deterrent benefits. Wright goes on to point out that if there is a 100% certainty of being apprehended for committing a crime, few people would do so. But since most crimes, including serious ones, do not result in an arrest and a conviction, the overall deterrent effect of the certainty of punishment is substantially reduced. Clearly, enhancing the severity of punishment will have little impact on people who do not believe they will be apprehended for their actions. 
While this point applies to premeditated crime in general, it applies a fortiori to the carefully planned and executed acts of corruption. A 1999 study by the Institute of Criminology at Cambridge University, upon which Wright draws, reaches the conclusion that the studies reviewed do not provide a basis for inferring that increasing the severity of sentences generally is capable of enhancing deterrent effects. The Cambridge researchers found that an increased likelihood or certainty of apprehension and punishment was associated with declining crime rates. Wright also refers to the work of Nagin and Pogarski, who found that punishment certainty is far more consistently found to deter crime than punishment severity, and the extra-legal consequences of crime seem at least as great a deterrent as the legal consequences. The conclusion reached by the study conducted by Wright seems unimpeachable. Research findings imply that increasingly lengthy prison terms are counterproductive and that the deterrent effect of lengthy sentences would not be substantially diminished if punishments were reduced from their current levels. Wright suggests that policymakers should reconsider their over-reliance on severity-based policies such as long prison sentences. Resources freed up by a rethink of this kind could be used for increased initiatives for prevention and treatment of offenders. Applied to sentencing the corrupt, the lesson to be learnt from the research is that severity of sentence is not a factor that bears proper scrutiny as a means of reducing the incidence of corruption. It is far more probable that the apprehension of certainly being caught, investigated, prosecuted and found guilty at the end of a fair trial is a more useful means of addressing the crime of corruption. The utility of minimum sentences for corruption offenders is accordingly questionable, expensive and not a useful way of addressing the problem. Strong anti-corruption institutions of state of the kind contemplated by the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal number 16 are a more appropriate strategy.